Hello, I am Kim Duke and I am married to an addict. Um, I guess today what I'm going to talk about is our relationship and how Chris's drinking affected our relationship. Um, so I guess I, last time we talked about, or the first time we talked about when it started, the drinking, um, I mean, it's been progressive over years and um, we would have lots of conversations and towards the end when his drinking got really bad, it was us talking, probably me talking once a month about Chris stopping or slowing down on his drinking and it was heated conversations, not arguments where I would explain to him about his drinking and how it got excessive and he would make excuses all the time. You know, he wasn't getting drunk. Um, he wasn't drinking that much. Um, when I pointed out it was every day, um, it was it was always an excuse. And I would just get angry and kind of shut down um, and not really. I It was hard because every month I would bring it up and bring it up. And it was the same argument over and over again. Um And it got to the point where I was so tired of the same argument over and over. Um, I started to actually resent Chris quite a bit. Um, There were moments where I didn't know if I wanted to be married anymore. Um, If this is what my marriage was going to be like. There were, you know, he would go to work all day. He would come home or he'd go to the liquor store, buy a six pack, come home come down to his office and drink um, until he went to bed. And it was me hanging out with the kids or doing things, you know, trying to interact with him coming in here. But then I would be so angry because I would see that he was drinking um, and I would try and push my anger aside. But it got to the point where um, I got really sick of having the same conversation. And I just, there were moments where I would, he'd be at work and the kids would be at school and I'd be home by myself and I would be picking up uh, cans around the house and just feel this anger. Uh, And there was a point where I was so upset that I actually went into the notes on my iPhone and figured out our separate bills um, to try and figure out if there was a way for me to actually make it with the kids in our house um, without Chris here. Um, and how much his bills would be if he could make it without being married. Um, and then looking at like apartments and stuff. Well, if we sold our house, how much money can we make back? We could split that in half. It had moments where I would be thinking about things like that. And it wasn't that I didn't love Chris because I knew at the end of the day, I would always love him, even if we were not together, but was love enough to have me push how I felt every day day or when he was drinking all the time aside to make the marriage work. Uh, And then I would feel like a crazy person. I would honestly sit and think and think all day long because when you're home alone and no one's here, you have time to think about things. And well, is he really drinking that much? He hasn't gotten a DWI. He hasn't. He's not abusive. He's not having affairs. You know, he would do things where he would be stuck in the cities, but he's not driving. He's not harming anybody. Um, so then I would think maybe I'm a crazy person. And there was moments where I would sit and think about that all day long. Like, um, but then I knew, you know, working in the field, well, you know, you're, you're not supposed to drink every day, you know, and you shouldn't drink every day. 
Uh, and I always wondered, was it, you know, his escape from something? Was there something bothering him? Was he holding something back that he wouldn't talk to me about? And it was literally driving, it was driving me insane. Um, and then there'd be moments where things would be good and I would be okay with it. And then it would just get bad again where it was, I would monitor our bank account. That's what I do. Cause you know, people hack into people's accounts and every other day, how much money he was spending going to the liquor store. And it really took its toll on me. I, and I think, you know, trying to get through to him and you can have these logical conversations with them and you can see that. He, and what I didn't understand is there were moments where he could quit for months at a time. And how come I would threaten divorce or leaving him and that it didn't matter, like, cause he didn't see it was a problem. Uh, I know when he quit a few weeks before his attempt, um, and then obviously started drinking again a week after he quit and he was very, distant and angry during that week. I know that he talked to a few people about he needs to, he's going to try and quit drinking and everyone's like, well, what did you do? What, what's your reasoning behind quitting drinking? Like, have you done anything? And, and that's another point where I felt like I was going crazy because all these other people around him didn't see how much he was drinking. Um, and they didn't see it as a problem, but I did. And it's like, is it because I'm living with it? Am I in my head over-exaggerating how much he was drinking? Um, so then I started to really not only resent Chris, but hate myself. Um, and it affected my mental health because I would have conversations with friends and other people like, uh, you know, trying to hear their stories about their significant others or their friends and how much they're drinking or just compare it to other people and think, well, maybe it isn't that bad. And then again, I knew that wasn't true. I knew that his drinking was a lot. Um, and there was a lot of resentment in the fact that I would be at work all night and um, he'd be drinking here at home with the kids and not that he got out of control, intoxicated, but knowing that he would drink enough that he couldn't drive legally. And if something were to happen with the kids where they had to go to the hospital for some reason or something happened to a family member of ours and he'd have to leave the house, he couldn't. Um, and I kind of used that too, to point out, um, like, why don't you stop drinking when I work because you know when I'm at work if something were to happen and his excuse would always be well I would just have if something was bad enough I would just have an ambulance take the one of the kids to the hospital if that's what's going on and it's just like logically in his head that made sense and it would just make me angry because it in my head I'm like that doesn't make sense you know if you could not just be sober when I'm at work, then I know that the kids, if something were to happen, they'd be okay. And not that they weren't, you know, not okay. It was just, you know, a fear that you have if something were to happen when you're not around and someone can't drive. Um, so there was a lot of anger there. Um, and just sometimes I saw a change of character with him when he would drink. Not that he would get mean or anything like that was just hard to rationalize things with him. 
and have conversations with him when he would drink certain things. I did notice that. Um, so that was, you know, lots of anger with that and feeling like I was losing my mind all the time. Um, and that's an awful way to feel and live with someone that you want to spend the rest of your life with. But then there are moments where you feel like you can't live with that person another day. And it was so hard because those good moments were good moments. But there was always that fear of, well, if we go somewhere, Chris is going to want to drink. I know the first time we went to California, that was a big fear of mine because you know, everywhere you go, you can drink and we're on a trip and is it going to revolve around drinking? Um, and the first time we went to California is kind of a blur. It was a couple of years ago, but I know we went a year ago, just Chris and I, and I mean, it wasn't bad then, but with the kids I got, you know, we'd go places and I don't drive in California because it's awful driving there and worrying that if, what if he drinks too much and can't drive and now I have to drive or if something happens, there's always this fear around it. Um, and then going out to eat anything where like I knew Chris would want to drink. I just don't want to do anything anymore. I think that I'm a homebody to begin with, but I think when Chris's drinking really got bad, it made me more of a homebody because I didn't want to go anywhere and watch him drink at other places or, you know, or go do things with people. Or I know our big thing was doing comedy and going to comedy shows. And it was, I knew that if I went with him somewhere, if comedy was involved, he would drink a bunch and I would have to drive home and vice versa. And it just made me angry a lot. I think I got a lot of anger over the past year and a half year where I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I needed to go talk to someone, go to therapy again, have someone to vent how I felt about everything out to because I have a lot of friends that have significant others that drink and it's just hard because it's like, it's such a socializing experience, you know, alcohol and fortunately and we live in a state where I don't know how many one and how many people have a DWI or, you know, everyone knows somebody that has a DWI or multiple people. So it's become like, yeah, my husband comes home from work. He takes back a couple beers. He does this and that. And I guess I just never saw my life like that. I never saw us being in this marriage where Chris goes work, come home, six pack, goes to bed. Um, and that's what it started to become was that kind of a marriage that I didn't really want. And, um, I guess the furthest I went into thinking about divorce was figuring out our bills and how much it would cost if we weren't together, if we could, we would obviously probably have to sell the house, um, split, you know, profit in half there. And then I knew he'd be okay. I think I had a lot of fear of if Chris would be okay. Would he be okay if we weren't together? Cause I think I have a, and I think I had the fear because he's had previous attempts that um, if I decided to leave, then what would happen or where would he go? Would his drinking actually get worse? So should I stay? Cause I have this fear that his drinking will get worse. 
Um, and that was one thing I thought about a lot as well. Um, and I mean, obviously it didn't get to that point, but we had conversations of me wanting to just be done with everything. Um, and then actually one thing I haven't talked about too is leading up to his attempt when that week that he actually quit drinking and was very angry and wouldn't want to be around me, wouldn't touch me, wouldn't look at me. I mean, that affected me significantly where I cry. I don't think I've cried that much in a long time. And I would just sit and cry that, and I didn't know how to deal with it. Um, cause he cha- changed into a different person. Obviously it's cause he was going through withdrawals. Um, but then when he started quitting everything, um, he quit. I mean, obviously people noticed we quit our podcast. He quit comedy. He quit. I mean, it, a while ago he actually quit photography, but he wasn't going to take really any pictures of anybody. He wasn't going to do anything anymore. And I kind of had this gut feeling something was going on. So um, I kind of had a feeling and I not exactly that he was going to attempt, but I just knew his mental health was off at that point. Um, so I was trying to hold on to whatever I could and try and figure out how to make him better without saying it. And, um, you know, obviously he made that week without drinking and didn't start drinking again, which I didn't know. Um, so that was, um, hard. And I already talked about kind of his attempt and I can, I guess I can talk about what I went through while he was gone, um, in treatment or in the hospital. Um, so when he was in the hospital, it was, I guess I, it's hard cause I have such a close relationship with him and ha- not having him here and not being able to talk to him all the time. And, you know, visiting hours, you only have certain periods of time and kids would be there. So it's, I felt like we didn't get to have serious conversations and kind of understand what he wanted. And I, you know, I listened to the first um, podcast and heard about how it was five days until he decided that he, you know, had a problem, which was very eye opening for me because I thought, you know, I talked about treatment pretty early on for him when he was in the hospital and actually looked at Hazleton and I was the one that reached out to them initially and seen if insurance coverage and whatnot. And, uh, so that was interesting to hear, but, um, thinking back, like I would, I wanted to visit all the time and be there all the time. And I was worried the more sober he got, the less he'd want to stay in our marriage and I don't know where that fear comes from but I did tell him you know one time like I felt like he was intoxicated for the last how many months every day um that maybe he that's why he was attracted to me or that's why he wanted to be you know everything seemed okay even though we'd argue about his drinking so that was you know, a fear I had while he was there. And then, you know, he comes home, he's sober. And then while he was in treatment, it was, we had really good conversations and I could see, you know, our marriage on a mend and it was better. And it's, you know, he's been home now for like, I think today was three weeks. He's been home and our marriage couldn't be any better. And we're very open. We talk about things and we've always been like that, but I know that that anger and resentment is gone. I, you know, I see all the progress he has made and how he's worked on himself. And, you know, 
him, him with the kids and, um, family wise, I guess I can talk a little bit about how it affected us as a family. Obviously he would be in his office all the time drinking. And I don't think the kids really noticed the amount he was drinking. They kind of always, since they were little, would make jokes about the beer store, getting dad another beer. And they haven't honestly, since Chris has been home from treatment, said anything about beer or anything like that. We had a lot of growlers on the top of our fridge that we got rid of. And, you know, Layla noticed that, but just said, what happened to all those things up there? And I did just told her that we took them down and they haven't. What's interesting is how kids notice everything. They have not brought up that we don't have beer or anything like that in the house, which is kind of, it makes you feel better because then that maybe they didn't identify it as a problem because they're so young. Um, but it's as a family unit, I don't know if the kids really could tell things were off with dad with alcohol because I've talked about this in previous podcasts. He is was a high functioning alcoholic. He wasn't stumbling around. He wasn't slurring his words. He wasn't doing things like that. He would just sit and drink in his office. Um, and then mom and dad would have co- talks in his office, which the kids obviously were not a part of. And I mean, I mean, they would, I guess I, it's hard because they wouldn't see those things. It was, you know, he hit it really well. And when he, um, you know, landed, the kids were home when he had attempted and they don't know a whole, I mean, they don't know anything about what had happened. They just knew that dad was sick and needed to go to the hospital and Landon took it very hard. Layla, you know, he's 10, Layla's seven. So Layla, you know, knew dad was sick and needed to be at the hospital, but Landon, he's a little more, he just notices things and he knew, knew something was off. Um, and we, I'm not going to get in the specifics of that night that he attempted, but you know, Landon heard, may have heard things or seen things. He didn't hear anything about it, like suicide attempt, but he, you know, as a child, you see, fire you know the ambulance here and the police here and all that and it's scary um and he he kind of shut down um and I did keep them out of school for a couple days and tried them get getting them back to school and back to their normal life and we did visit you know dad and the or Chris in the hospital and um you know he didn't ask me a whole lot just why was dad you know, what was going on with dad and he'd ask questions like that. But I actually went and talked to a child therapist, a psychotherapist about how to talk to Landon about all this. And she gave me some tips, which she gave me this worksheet that was amazing. And she kind of said that, let Landon start the conversation, let him be the one that brings it up. Um, and he never really did. He would just ask you know, what was going on that night. And I would ask him, you know, a question back, like, well, what do you think was going on that night? And he didn't know. And, you know, then dad came or Chris came home for three days and we had to have the talk before he went to Hazleton that, um, dad's gonna be gone for 28 days, you know, dad's home. And then Chris worded it really well for the kids that sometimes adults have an illness inside them that people can't see, Um, but they need special doctors or special people to kind of work on that. And, um, so then, yeah, the day that 
Chris went to treatment. The kids went to school normal. Um, and I know Landon had a really hard time after school. My sister-in-law, um, picked them up and was there for them and there for Landon. And we, you know, we did let him know that we get to visit dad and we get to talk to him on the phone. And, um, it was hard trying to keep things together for the kids, you know, trying to keep myself in together the, the whole time. Um, one time when we were in the hospital, I tried really hard not to cry in front of the kids. I kept it together when they were at school, when Chris is in the hospital, that's when I would cry. And, um, one time I hugged Chris when we were leaving the hospital and I started just crying. And when we walked out of the area to get to the lockers, you know, the kids were just very like, they were staring at me, like very receptive in the, they're noticing that I'm not doing very well. And all night they were just like, are you okay, mom? You know, what's going on, mom? And, so I tried really hard, especially when he was in Hazleton. To, I knew that, okay, this is it. He's in treatment. Once he comes out, he'll be coming home. So I don't think I was as sad. It was just when he was in the hospital, the unknown of, okay, he, how long is he going to be here? What's it going to be like when he gets out? Is he going to go to the treatment right away? Is it going to be a long wait to get into treatment? What if our insurance doesn't cover, you know, all, treatment, all these types of things. Um, so it was that unknown. But once he was in Hazleton, it was better um, as a little unit, we, me and the kids always talked about we're a team of three right now, but we're always a team of four. And, um, it was, they did well. Um, I, you know, Landon, you can tell that he was still a little off. And I know Chris asked me the question shortly after he got home, if I'd noticed anything different with Landon and immediately it's so interesting looking at Landon, you could almost see like a weight lifted off his shoulders that he was no longer holding something and we I did have a talk with him with Landon um probably a couple weeks before Chris came home from Hazleton and you know asked him if he's trying to get in the mind of a 10 year old like why you know he's you can tell he's still struggling he was seeing actually the school social worker once a week just to get out of class and go do something because I did let the school know what was going on if they noticed anything different with Landon at least then they would know um and um you know I said are you worried that dad's gonna come home from this other you know this other place he's at and have to go somewhere again because as a child your dad's gone for eight days in a hospital comes home for three days and now is gone for 28 days and I guess I tried to think of what would my fear be at 10 well it would be that my um parents not going to come back again and you know he acknowledged that that was a fear of his and um so I just let him know though nope once dad comes home he w- he's gonna be home and I was hoping that would help him you know not be so worried about whether or not dad was gonna stay home and when the day that Chris came home uh, it was like Landon and like Landon just like seemed such so much more relaxed and back to himself and Layla kind of she's just her own little person so she didn't really I mean she was very happy dad was coming home but she's also it didn't it, I mean, it affected her, but not to the degree it affected Landon. Um, so I guess now three weeks into Chris being home, you know, every day is uh, we're still coming together as a family and, you know, we're trying to work through everything together still. And um, I know that 
Chris has a different topic he's going to talk about and maybe I'll talk a little on that, I guess, is um, cravings and relapse. Um, I guess I haven't had any fear about relapse. Cravings, I I guess I would love to get in the mind of Chris and know when he gets cravings. We uh, went and got, um, I was craving chicken wings tonight. So we went and picked them up and it's obviously right next to the liquor store and I didn't think anything of it. And he goes in, gets them, comes out and it's like, I wonder if he's thinking about wanting to go into the liquor store. I wonder if he sees the signs and thinks, oh man, it would be really great to just get a case right now. And I didn't, obviously, I didn't ask him in that moment because I guess I don't know how to bring that up yet. Um, So I always wonder about that. And, you know, they talk so much about relapse and treatment. And um, I guess I just would, you know, I'll be interested to know what his fears are of relapse. Wonder, I wonder what he thinks, you know, how, how I would react to him if he had a relapse. And I don't know. I don't know how I'll react. I guess I'll be as supportive as I can be um, because that's all I can do is to be a supportive person and know that we're people and things can happen. But I also hope that um, he's not afraid to talk to me about these kind of things. And I guess we'll, you know, craving wise, I'm sure, you know, he gets, he's got to get them and you know, I'm actually 25 days sober. My days are 25 more than him. And I haven't had any cravings or anything like that. I, and I know I talked about that in previous podcasts. I don't want to go and talk about it again too much, but, um, I haven't really felt the need even, you know, this would be the time where I'm very overwhelmed, you know, with everything going on in the world and can't do anything and all that. But it's just not something that I, I, it's interesting. I don't see myself doing that. Um, again, which is good. We don't have a sober household. Um, but yeah, I guess if I had a relapse, I would talk to Chris about it and be open about it. Um, I feel like obviously that's important to be open with somebody when they're in treatment and had gone through treatment and here we are. And anyways, I feel like the last 27 minutes I just talked about (laughs) kind of went from one thing to the next thing, the next thing, but overall, um, I really did want to talk about how it affected our relationship. And it's interesting because I told Chris that I was going to talk about how it affected our relationship and he kind of would push it aside or it it didn't affect him as much as it affect me and my thinking of our relationship and um family wise you know it's not like it's hard to describe because it didn't i mean it affected us as a family when it was going on but i guess not to what people would think um but mainly um I wanted to, you know, talk about that and hopefully people, maybe people will have more questions, but, um, lots of, I guess, anger, resentment, and maybe, you know, I thought about going to Al-Anon even before Chris thought he had a problem or I thought Chris had a problem. And I talked to people about it before because I had a family member that had struggled with, um, 
alcohol and addiction. And I thought maybe that wouldn't help me understand it too. And, you know, thinking back, I really wish I would have done it. And Hazelton has a really great family program that I hope I can still maybe go to or, you know, get some information on just because right now they're obviously not doing it with people not being able to be together. Um, but then I could learn more about my, you know, how to think about addiction differently as a family member. But what's been helpful is, you know, just talking with Chris because he's, he knows, he know, he went through some treatment and understands it. And he, you know, he's the guy. He was the guy that went there and he gathered a lot of information and he, he talked about people that were in the family program there and what they learned um, and how it, you know, I'm just very grateful because you hear a lot about how um, addictions can ruin a marriage or a relationship. And if anything, you know, through all this, we're stronger than we've ever been. Um, and, you know, I would talk to his parents and family members that I'm here, you know, I, I, you know, you hear about family member, you know, relationships that don't make it through treatment or people that just can't deal with it. And that was never when he went to treatment in the hospital, that was never an option not to work through things. It was always where I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that our relationship works out in the end. And yeah, and we're here three weeks later and things are great. And, you know, I'm glad I'm doing this podcast with him and, you know, sharing all this with everybody who listens. And um, I hope we can keep this going and I hopefully, um, help somebody out. And I know I say that a lot as well. Um, but yeah, here we go on to Chris. Hi, my name is Chris and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I, uh, wanted to talk about, um, cravings and, uh, relapse. Um, cause for, you know, 36 days, those were, uh, things that weighed pretty heavy on myself and, uh, and other people that I was in, in treatment with, or that I was in the hospital with. So taking it back to when I was in the hospital, I had no idea what treatment was like. I had no idea what it was going to look like. Um, and like I've said before, I had these two mini shooters in my jacket um, planning to, to be able to, to drink those when I would get home, not realizing that that was, um, you know, relapse. Um, yeah, just you. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's tough to process. Sorry. Um, while I was in the hospital, I, uh, was, yeah, very unsure as to, to what was going to happen once I got over to, to Hazelden, the, the facility that I was at. And when I was, when I finally got there the first day I had, uh, a buddy and, uh, they, are just assigned to walking you around, you know, telling you what the, the chores are going to be for the day. Um, and you know, house duty shit. Um, similar, you know, you have roommates, so you're going to have, uh, have chores. 
Um, <clears throat> we did our walkthrough pretty quickly, and we're taking a beat at this table, and I asked him how he ended up there, and he gave me like a brief uh, kind of synopsis of how he got there, and I told him how I had got there, and we had very similar stories, and he was moved by that. Um, he's somebody that, you know, kind of believes in something greater and um, wanted to uh, let me know that, like, it it meant a lot to him that he felt that there was some reason that we were paired up together, um, that he was my buddy that day. And turns out he was right. Like, he, he made a big difference in my time there. But the reoccurring thing that kept happening. Um, so let me, let me step back every single day. I wanted, I wanted to drink for sure. While I was in the hospital, um, I would have thoughts of like, if I, you know, gummed or cheeked, uh, this, these meds that they're giving me and kind of took more later, would that get me high? Um, if I, you know, is there a certain medication that I could snort and, and get high from? Like there's all these, all these thoughts <clears throat> that even though I tried to kill myself, I still like had this need to, this itch to scratch as some people say. And, um, it's, it's crazy. Um, so cravings were just persistent throughout and, um, and even, yeah, before I went to like, once I got out of the hospital and went to Hazelden or before I went to Hazelden, um, the treatment facility, uh, I was in, I was in this office and if you look back on our, um, our previous episodes, um, you can see that, there were like empty uh, liquor bottles and beer bottles and things like that around that, like some that looked looked cool. Um, so we, we kept them and there was a, a gray duck vodka, which is a vodka company out of Minnesota. Um, the, a bottle that we hung on to because, you know, it's very similar to our podcast name, the duck, duck, gray Duke. So, um, Kim had left, this was two days after I had gotten out of the hospital. Kim had left, uh, to go get lunch for everybody. And I came down into the office and went over to that, that bottle, even though it was empty, um, popped to the top and just took the deepest breath in. And that was because, yeah, well, Sorry, not that was because that doing that, um, it like this massive flushing calm came over me and it was such a weird, weird feeling, um, to know that just the, the, the fumes from vodka could like calm me down so much, um, so then fast forward back to the treatment center. 
Um, uh, I'm every single night that I was there, I had a dream about drinking every single night, whether it was trying to get away with drinking. Most of the time it was trying to get away with drinking. Some dreams would be Kim saying that it was okay for me to drink. Um, very, a lot of them super vivid dreams too, where I could feel like I was either drunk or high or whatever. Yeah. There was never a night that I didn't have, have that dream. And then each day people just kept talking more and more about, um, cravings. And for a lot of them, they'd been in there multiple times. I would say when I got in there, there were 20 people on the unit and four of us. It was our first time ever in treatment, which is a fucking scary statistic, man. And, uh, everybody's story times, uh, when, when they would have us, we would, uh, meet every so often, um, after somebody had been at the treatment facility for X amount of time and they would have to read their story kind of like a brief history on their family life, um, and, and drug or alcohol use consequences of that use, um, and how they ended up there like most recently. And people just kept talking about relapse. People kept talking about going in and out of treatment facilities. I met someone who had been to treatment nine times. Nine times. All the groups that we would be in, people would talk about their relapse. All of the, almost all of the lectures that we had, um, where we would go, everyone at the, facility would go into this big auditorium to listen to a speaker. So like a volunteer, um, who, you know, had been sober for, um, for as long as 35 years from a short to one year, um, just to give people different perspectives on how their lives are now. Um, and all of them would talk about, about their relapse. It felt like there was no fucking hope, especially early on, because on top of that, I, I was having religion forced on top of me. Uh, you know, I got into an argument with one guy after he found out that I was an atheist that I never say I'm an atheist to try and start shit. Like a long time ago when I first became one, that might've been the case, but especially while I was in there, I just wanted to get sober and didn't really give a fuck, but it, having people try to push that stuff on me and make it seem like I had to be saved in two ways, which was religiously and, um, sobriety. It fucking makes it very difficult. Um, so anyways, these people would, would constantly say how, how they had relapsed and relapsed and relapsed and relapsed and relapsed and no groups or classes that we were in, talked about how to avoid relapse. It was all just fucking disparity. It was very scary. There was a, another person that I was in there with. We had a lot of similarities, um, certain similarities that I don't want to say because it, it could, um, 
people might be able to figure out who that person is. So I'll just say that we, we both have kids and, um, after we, we found out that we had these other things in common, we kind of latched on to one another and we were both feeling the same amount of like hopelessness. Like he would be in a group at the same time that I would like, but in separate groups and, and we would meet back up at the, at the smoke pit, which is where all the good ideas happen. Um, and just talk about how fucking terrifying relapse is. And so this, this time when I had like this big epiphany, um, because relapse is still very fucking scary. Don't get me wrong. I have not like perfected anything. This is all still a learning process and I'm still in like what counselors consider the danger zone. So I'm I'm not going to pretend. And that's another scary thing is like having to accept that I am still very susceptible to this shit. And it's not hard for me to say to like imagine me drinking. You know, I I'm not seeking it, but the world is fucked up right now and it's it's the choice is almost kind of made for me. Like when I was in treatment and in the in the hospital, I uh sorry. Got a phone call. In the hospital, the decision was made for me to not use. When I was in treatment, the decision was made for me to not use. I, it, it wasn't difficult to, to stay sober in those conditions because um, the conditions are perfect to, to you know, stay sober. So one day we had a, a new person come in and uh, he was kind of an older gentleman. This was his fifth go round. And he, it kind of seemed, I don't know, it was hard to gauge whether or not he wanted to be there or not. And it just seemed, I don't know, it was hard to read him. Um, and we were out at the smoking pit and I was just like, kind of, because I was so scared of all this stuff and feeling depressed. And then having this guy be one more example for that day, I was like, I just was blunt. I was like, Hey man, what, why, why are you doing this again? What's the, what's the point? What, if you're just going to relapse, like why, why, why do this? And he was like, I don't know, man, I have to, you know, I have to survive or I, I have to try in order to survive. And it was a huge, like the, without a doubt, biggest like light bulb moment when I was in treatment was this guy saying that he had to survive. Cause I was like, Holy shit. That's when you break it down, that is completely all we're trying to do. Something in us is broken and we need to figure out how to survive without that substance. And that changed the whole um, scope of things for, for when I was for myself and, and this other individual that I befriended. Um, and I, I thanked that dude more, more times than I can count, um, after hearing him say that. Cause I was just like, it, every time I would hear relapse after that, I would 
try to ask a counselor or whoever anytime that I could, how, how do we avoid that type of a relapse that you're talking about? Or how do we avoid, um, there's something called a dry drunk where if you're not going to meetings and trying to, to better your sobriety, um, you kind of, even though you're sober, you're not sober minded and that can lead to relapse as well. And there's, um, I wish I could remember the, the phrase for it, but there's a, a relapse before a relapse, which is to say the conditions are perfect for you to end up in relapse. Like you're not taking it. So it's this similar to that dry drunk thing where, or they can be one in the same thing um, where you're not taking care of yourself. And just because you're sober, you think that you've achieved this thing, but you haven't put up the safeguards that you need to in order to stay sober. And so when a situation presents itself in just the right way, using again, drinking again happens without thought really. And, and then you're fucked. Um, that's, so for me, I, I kept thinking about, um, how I I don't want to downplay Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, but there's even the agnostic version of it. There's still a religious feel to it. And even though I, I don't want it to bother me, it does sometimes. And that's, you know, and I, I plan on getting over that eventually. But the thing that I kept thinking of when I found out about, um, how your dopamine levels get fucked up. There's this movie called Pleasure Unwoven, which describes this whole addiction thing very well in a objective manner, as objectively as as possible. Which is to say that um, people with um, certain genetics or certain background, or if they're introduced to certain things too early on, um, they have a higher chance of becoming addicts long-term. Um, and then that whole dopamine level getting fucked up and, um, your, your brain becomes, um, incapable of discerning the message that your midbrain sends to your frontal prefrontal cortex, um, it's unable to discern what's a bad decision and what's not far too late. So that's why people get immensely depressed. That's why I got immensely depressed um, when I would drink, especially towards the end, um, because we feel like powerless, completely powerless. So for me, when I learned that stuff, I, th- I thought, oh, okay, there's, there, there's no, if it comes, 
if that whole survival thing is what my driving force is, then I need to not just sit in chairs and do that whole community thing, which is important. I don't want to downplay that shit. I I genuinely don't. But for me, there is a lying beast that could attack at any fucking moment without me knowing. And that split second where my prefrontal cortex needs to say, nope, don't do that. It might already be too late for me. Plus I have ADD, depression, anxiety, all of these other things that I'm already dealing with. So the mental health part of it is became immensely important to me. Um, and trying to externalize um, that that aspect of, of myself. And so when I have cravings now, um, it's in in a way that I can I can look at it externally, like I said. Um, and so that's I wanted I wanted to talk about that because people ask me, like well people ask me and they're scared to ask me about cravings i i get it like for some people talking about you know what just this morning i saw a commercial for jack daniels and i had a monster craving because i and i almost almost just like smelling that vodka bottle um I could just feel that calming sensation about when I would, when I would drink, I had my, my method, which was, um, drink X amount and five minutes from now, you're going to feel 10 times better. Um, I'm sorry. I know I'm kind of all over the place. Um, but yeah, so that externalizing that stuff became, is what I think is super important because of all of the other stuff that I'm having to deal with. Oh, sorry. People asking questions, afraid to ask me about cravings and, and, and that stuff. Um, yeah, it's, I, I get why it's scary because people can be triggered by talking about drinking as well. There was a lot of people while I was in treatment that got triggered by, um, by, uh, just hearing about drugs in these, in these groups, in these small groups. Um, and plus it's, it's, uh, knowing that I've been in treatment and that I spent, 36 days away from my family. Like you, I, people are, you know, want to be careful about the way that they talk to me, which is fine for now, for sure. Um, but after I learned all that stuff, it's a, it feels different and it's really hard to explain how it's, it's like an out of body experience knowing this defect that I have. Um, 
it's like I have back problems. I don't, I don't pick up heavy things. I don't, you know, I don't try to do, I don't snowboard. I don't, I don't do, there's all kinds of precautions that I take to make sure that I don't fuck up my back. And likewise, and, and I can, when I visualize those things, I can almost feel the pain that's in my back. The same thing with using, I can almost feel the pain and the shame that comes with, with using, um, or, or drinking, right? It's one and the same thing using it all. It's all the same thing. Um, so it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, interesting thing. But like I said, for people who are trying to recover, that's, I'm sorry, that, that's why I'm bringing this up. If it seems like I've talked about a couple of these things before, it's because it wasn't talked about enough when I was in treatment. I had to figure this shit out on my own and, and with this other uh, brother, we'll say. Um, because that's, it's, it's fine. And when you're, when you're telling people that they need to find groups and find meetings and find sponsors and things, and then you have a pandemic happen, that's a terrifying storm or yeah, terrifying, perfect storm for, for some people when it comes to trying to recover. Um, so it's important to, to figure, be able to figure this shit out and to, to know that relapse is a real thing and it's a scary thing um, that you have to have your guard up and think about those things in the same way that I think about the, the injury that I have in my back or um, the, the uh, example that they give a lot is um, if you're a diabetic, you have to take insulin um, and nobody nobody thinks any less of somebody for having to take insulin um, and I don't think people should think anything less of someone who is taking extra precautions to make sure that they don't relapse whatever they whatever they have to do because again the most important thing is that you have to fucking survive that's step one survive because then, as long as you're surviving and healthy, um, you're going to be able to take on a lot more. Um, yeah, I think that that all is super important. Um, and I think um, I think NA meetings have a lot more to offer in that realm. Narcotics Anonymous. Um, at, at least from, from what I, myself and, and these other people experienced, um, because they got a late start to the game. There was a lot of more, uh, shame and it was more taboo to talk about, uh, narcotic addiction. Um, so relapse and things like that. They didn't have tools. They didn't have Alcoholics Anonymous would, like people in those meetings would kind of shun. It was weird. It was a clicky thing, I guess, back in the day. I'm not super well versed on it, but if you are not vibing with Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, find a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. Find a brother in Narcotics Anonymous um, because when it comes to addiction, it doesn't really make a difference. 
there, there's may be certain life experiences that are slightly different, but addiction is addiction. And if you're trying to survive, man, talking to those people about relapse is, um, a good fucking resource, I think. Cause, um, from what I found, I, a lot of those folks had way more experience with it. Um, and even though they'd been in and out a bunch of times, they had so much to offer, um, in those meetings that would, yeah, I always found super, 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 super important and appreciative. Um, okay. Um, today, um, I have got a letter and again, um, if you've got questions that you want to ask us, you can send those in to, uh, duck, duck, gray duke, um, at gmail.com and, and we can answer them there. Otherwise you can message our Facebook page, duck, duck, gray duke on Facebook as well. And that's Duke like the college, not, not a uh, duck. Um, but you, and we'll, we'll try to have those, those episodes where Kim and I are together more so that we can answer people's questions and, um, try to, try to get some, some phone calls in. I know we've got a couple coming up that I'm excited for. Um, I think the people that are going to call in have a lot to say and I'm excited to, to hear from those individuals. So, uh, with that, let's get to this, uh, episode's letter, which again, um, I do not read any of these in advance. Um, so I wanted to give real unedited versions of what these people have to say. Um, these are letters from family members or close friends. Um, and the, uh, the letter is how my drinking, uh, in one instance negatively affected them. And I asked them to, to, to send me an email about that because of something that I had learned from somebody while I was in treatment. Sorry if you've heard that a few times now, but I uh, just wanted to get that out in case somebody hasn't, uh, hasn't heard that yet. <clears throat> Uh, I've been thinking about this letter for weeks now, or for weeks not knowing what to say. How your drinking negatively affected the family and me. It's been hard for me to rationalize my thoughts and get past some feelings of helplessness and anger. You and Kim would visit and we would drink and have a blast uh, a few weekends a year at our place. Uh, those times weren't negative at all for me. If anything, they were some of my favorites. The other side was when we visited uh, y'all, uh, whether at your house uh, or at your parents, it was like a game of how do we drink and not get caught. I didn't see it as much an issue, but I think I was ignorant as to how much you were drinking. Uh, I remember cr Christmas at the cabin uh, in Wisconsin Dells. Your mom uh, found all the alcohol and I felt awful. Uh, they have so few rules when it comes to us. I felt I, I let her down. That wasn't just you, it was all of us. A big piece of all of this for me is the kids. I just listened to the first episode, and I'm not sure if you two uh, will discuss the kids and all this, uh, but those two are where my worry now lies. 
what what have the kids heard and seen over the years? What did Landon see that night? What would have happened if your attempt would have been successful? How could we ever explain it to them? What questions will they have down the road? In terms of negative effect, I think this is the piece I can't let go of. I'm mad you let it go that far. I'm mad Scott and I didn't see something. Um, I'm mad we didn't know so uh, you could... Ah, sorry. <clears throat> I'm mad we didn't know so uh, we could move past jokes and ask serious questions. I'm mad that you don't understand how much your family loves and needs you, but I'm most mad that I can't fix it. But I promise I'm in this with you. Um, I may be mad, but you are family and I won't ever turn my back. I love you and can't wait to see uh, what this brings. Uh, P.S. This is the most serious one-sided conversation we've ever had. I wish that wasn't true. And uh, we knew each other on a much deeper level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, fuck. That one is uh, tougher than the last letter for sure. Um. It's, it's a, God, there's so many, so many things with that. Um, I'm try I don't want to say locations, but like when I would go to that, um, that family member's house, um, I, my drinking was like, especially at its, at its most, like I, even if I hadn't been drinking as much um before going there something about that place when i would get there um it felt like going on vacation and and i um would just drink and drink and drink and i would especially at that place i would find ways to drink and hide stuff um i would drink the next morning um before we had to go home and and try to do it fast enough so that I wouldn't have to drive back home, um, which is something that I regret a lot. Um, I, uh, that, that family, especially like there, we've had, differences in opinion on certain things but I think that those things probably would have been easier to talk out and to get over had I not been drinking so fucking much and my drinking would influence that other family member their significant other to drink more too like um, we would just buy alcohol just hand over fist man drinking so much making games out of it and we had such such positive experiences for the most part um but then the bad experiences 
the bad experience says because there was more more than one um would be so far on the other spectrum of the good times that we would have and i gotta own up to my end of that like big time for sure Ugh, this all fucking hurts a lot having to like re go through this stuff because you feel like you've progressed and like you're um not that person anymore but at the same time I was in treatment or in the hospital the whole time so nobody felt like I was ready to even try to start to say these things to me um to try and be honest and and um you know talk about the consequences of the shit that I did the the, the way that I would act so um it's it's time that that stuff start to happen for sure um and i just even though this sucks i'm i'm glad that i'm doing it cuz i i want i want these people to feel better um it, it you know like the reason why we're doing this it one i can't go to meetings like physically um and I, I, um, we, sorry, Kim and I, it's weird because we recorded separately, so I forget sometimes, but, um, we want like spouses to be able to find a place to, to bounce, you know, their feelings off of and, um, you know, to hope, like just, just find a place where they can feel some commonality and, um, have hope, I guess it's, I'm building hope. Kim is building hope as much as anybody who's going to listen to this can get from us. I hope that makes sense. But like, um, any progress that I make, I hope shows and, and that shows people how they can progress in real time, not in like some happy short answer or short story version at a, you know, at an AA meeting or, or, you know, however you want to say that. Um, please subscribe, please share these episodes, uh, wherever you can, if it's YouTube, if it's, um, Apple podcasts, it would mean the the fucking world to us. Um, it helps hopefully if, <laughs> yeah, reach as many people as we can to try and help. So, and keep us motivated to keep doing this shit. Love you guys. And uh, with that, I will pass.